Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation. Episode number 39? Yeah. 39. Uh, Kate McDonald from the Punchline reunion party at Liz and Pete Humes' house. <clears throat> I was actually... Liz, uh, of course, is the host of Wordy Birds on WRIR, and she has some really nice equipment, some nice microphones, and I wanted to try them out, and then um, in the process of trying them out, I said, oh, well, let's let's interview a bunch of people, and I planned to have her feed me guests from the party and have them sit down and talk, but I just ended up talking to Kate McDonald, um, this is my friend Jayon's wife, and uh, she's got a master's in oriental studies, or... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what they, I think that's what she said they called it at the school she went to, but basically, I mean, it's religion and philosophy in India and China and Japan, you know, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, stuff that I'm, fascinates me. So um, we have a cool conversation about that, and uh, it's only a half an hour, and uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not the usual kind of tantric conversation thing, but uh, that's all I got this week, so it'll have to do, uh, oh, let's get on into that, you know? Sounds good. But you, you're you responsible me out for it, right? booking the next guest, so you have to send somebody in here after okay. Kate's okay. been on for about, you know, 15 okay. minutes. And Jayon hasn't done anything. Okay. Send, send Jayon in, yeah. like, so, now. <laughs> so are we going? Yeah, you are. All right. Right. It is picking up a lot of uh, background noise, but that's cool. We're at a party. Yeah. So we're here at, at, a, at a punchline reunion party, and uh, Liz was demonstrating me some better equipment than what I'm currently using. <clears throat> and uh, so now I'm going to get a bunch of different people to come and sit down and talk. And the fir- my first guest is Hello. Kate McDonald. But is it, you say it MacDonald? Yeah, MacDonald. AC. Kate McDonald, a.k.a. Kate Falsini. Sure. Do you do McDonald Falsini? Well, I promised that it, I would change it to Falsini when uh, when we had kids. So now you got to get on. Got it now. Yeah. Now How do you like he's that? He's holding name? me to it. You like it's it? A, it's a good name. Yeah. It's a good name. I. It's very. It's. Uh, I'm used to being a an Irish person, Scottish person most of my so life. That's right. So it's a little identity switch. There. Did you tell me it's that you were Irish people with Scott Scottish names? Or so, well, no, we have. Uh, on my mother, well, and actually, so three out of four grandparents are Irish, and then the fourth is the the one with my last name, the Scottish one. And so the patriarchal line is Scottish, is the thing. Right? There we go. Yeah. yeah. My my dad's dad. So Scottish. the last time that we talked, we were you. Uh, it was revealed rather casually that you have a, a, a doctorate. I have a master's. A master's. Master's in yes. In. Uh, well, Oriental Studies, they call it over in England, so mm. very colonial yeah, it sounds uh, sort of borderline term. Borderline <laughs> racist. <laughs> it, it does, right? Mm. The Orient, very mysterious. It's mm-hmm. where you get opium and tea and mm-hmm. things like that. But this is a department started by Alan Watts? Um, right? Not that I know, but perhaps. Maybe you know more than I do. No, I, don't, I was <laughs> making that up, but it sounds like... It's in that tradition. Like he was the English, the English professor who. Yeah, sort of I mean they 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 got really interested in uh, studying the the religion of the you know different different mm-hmm. places where they were to basically get inside the mind of yeah, the, the mind of the natives. Mm-hmm. 
So um, Eastern religions, uh, and, you know, India was one of the huge sort of em one of the right. big, uh, colonial empires. And so um, that's where th this fits under the, uh, I studied early Indian Buddhism, basically. And so it fits under that huge umbrella of Oriental mm -hmm, <laughs> religions. Mm -hmm. Although uh, we, we would never think use of it that as, term. Right. Indian subcontinent. It is technically part of Asia, right? Yeah, is that, it is. Uh, South Asia. Mm -hmm. um, Southeast Asia, specifically, is what I'm studying. And so um, I studied early Indian Buddhism, but then uh, Sri Lankan Buddhism, which is the closest thing to early Buddhism that's still in practice today. Uh -huh. um, and dying out. So Theravadan Buddhism, which is the oldest kind of lineage of Buddhism, mm -hmm. um, is uh, much smaller, um, much much less people actually practice than Mahayana Buddhism. And Mahayana, the great vehicle, right? The that's great vessel, yeah, uh -huh. exactly. Um, it embraces all of the previous uh, differences that people had? or Well, it, my, so Mahayana started... Uh, several hundred years, about 400 years after the advent of Buddhism with the perfection of wisdom sutras. And it's what, you know, it's one of the reasons it's called the great vehicle is that there's tons and tons of different types of Mahayana Buddhism. Mm -hmm. like, if you look at all the different Buddhisms in China and Japan and, um, you know, Zen, Chan, Pure Land Buddhism, all of that, and even Tibetan B Buddhism, which is kind of its own thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. people consider that to be a third vehicle, but... Um, all of that is Mahayana Buddhism. So basically everything that's not Theravadan Buddhism is, can be considered Mahayana. And they refer actually to Theravadan Buddhism as Hinayana, Hinayana. the lesser vehicle. Okay. But you, you, that's so sort of an a Mahayana will call a Theravada a Hinayana. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, and you always know, like, if you're reading a text and uh, they refer to Theravadan Buddhism as Hinayana, well, then you know that they're actually... It's a diss. Yeah, it's a diss, <laughs> and you know that they're not a real Theravadan uh -huh, scholar, then they're uh -huh. actually, we've got parrots in That's the That's always here. seemed uh, like anti, um, counterintuitive to me that this particular field, and I don't want to call it a discipline, because there are disciplines to it, but... Or, or, but it seems like the base understanding of it is the you know it's an antithesis of drawing all these lines. It's about erasing lines, right? Like right. The, and it's it's you know whereas Christianity you can understand with all this Western you know chopping up and and compartmentalizing of stuff that it makes sense that there's Calvinism, Protestantism, right. all of this stuff. And Divisions. So, it's all this terminal Western ego uniqueness stuff. Sure. Whereas it seemed like the point. Of Buddhism, of Buddhism is getting away inclusive. from all of that and more right. yeah, yeah. But then of course, you know, human personalities get involved. Still and, people. Yeah. And the same thing happens. I mean there's all sorts of great, you know, splits in the history of, of Buddhism where that happens. But one of the things you're right about early Buddhism is that it is supposed to be inclusive and because it is an individual path, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a couple of, you know, kind of simple rules, but it's up to you as to how, to you what degree them. you mm -hmm. follow those rules. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you know, consider yourself Buddhist because it's your own individual mm -hmm. um, dedication that matters. Mm -hmm. It's not... It's your own it's individual commitment. External, and it's not a... Uh, right. right. It's, not a, it's not a devotion to a god. It's not even a devotion to... Anything. Um, not even to Buddhism. Not even to Buddhism itself. That's right. It's, it's about yourself. Mm-hmm working on yourself and effacing so. that to some degree like getting at what is the true self not the self of the ego 
right? Right. The, the self we confuse, the false self we confuse with the true self. And that's more Eckhart Tolle talking, I think. Right. Yeah. No, but that works. I mean, the, it's, it's the idea of the Atman, right? Mm-hmm. So it's that in early Buddhism. So it, early Buddhism is a, you can look at it as a sort of reformation from what was happening in Hinduism at the time. Mm-hmm. This is about 500 BCE. And at the time, um, Hinduism was all about, uh, this is when the Upanishads are being written. And the message of that is that we have this eternal soul called the, called the Atman, which mm-hmm. is our true self. Mm-hmm. And that you have to understand that this true self is, in fact, the universe. Not there. <laughs> yeah, well, that it's, that it's everything. That yeah. it's not an individual self. Mm-hmm. That, it's, that you are the entire universe. And we talked about and yeah, this and that's before, Al, that's right? Alan Watts' thing. Like he puts it in 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 like you know '60s terminology, and you know, kind of g- just getting at that like you're it, man. You know, yeah. you're there. You're not a lost alone in the universe. You are the universe. The earth has peopled the way an apple tree apples. Right, and there's and, no difference between me, you, the table, the cosmos. Right. It's all the same thing. It's all this gigantic bowl of soup or whatever. But um. So early Buddhism was a reaction to that because the founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, went mm-hmm. out and did all of these different, you know, various ascetic techniques to try to come to that From realization. From the existing Indian religions at the time. Yeah. He tried all this different stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. To try, you know, the starving yourself to mm-hmm. death, exposing yourself, walking around naked in mm-hmm. the brutal sun, all of these things. Um, and none of them worked. Um, and he eventually comes to the realization, you know, his body is so broken, he's so tired, he's so overextended that he can't possibly, you know, come to this ultimate overall um, arching, you know, what's supposed to be this truth. And um, what he finally does is he actually accepts some, he breaks down and right. he accepts some food. A bowl of rice porridge. Right. From a maiden. Right. And um, it allows him to, all of a sudden, his mind starts working and turns on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it allows him to start um, uh, using his brain to sort of look deeper into this ultimate truth. And what he realizes is it, this, this Atman, it doesn't exist. Right. There's, in, instead, you know, he has all of these perceptions, forms, feelings all of these different things that tie together to, to trick us into thinking mm-hmm. that we have a coherent self, but that ultimately everything is impermanent, mm-hmm. including the self. The self that we have is just this moment-to-moment right. um, perception, but that the ultimate truth is that everything is impermanent. Yeah. And so that's, that's the true self. Right. I is. like that. I mean, and, and, you know, that was an... I think when I got exposed to those concepts when i was 21 the very idea of not just being me like the me that i thought i was like you know intrepid western you know explorer cowboy um bohemian all of that kind of stuff i wasn't even attractive to realize this empty self like fuck that right (laughs) right it's not very sexy where's that taking me it's too logical but once once you've piled up enough experience and then created a warped perception of life and yourself out of all of that stuff you start seeing the benefit in emptying out some of that and start recognizing you don't need to be so attached to these interpretations because they're not unique and they're not special and that's a good thing right that they're just kind of a thing that the human consciousness does you know, in the process of trying to do other things, 
Like, <laughs> and there's you know. something comforting in that. Mm-hmm. And also certainly comforting, I think, in, in knowing that um, this self that we grasp so strongly to, that it's impermanent. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, if, if you're unhappy in a particular moment or you really dislike something or someone or mm-hmm. the way that you're feeling about something. Well, that will change. It is going to change. Yeah. Uh, inevitably, mm-hmm. it will change. I like to say that bad times can't last any longer than good times do. Right. You know? Right. And that's <laughs> the tough part, though, is, is realizing <laughs> that the good moments that you're un- attached to, those will change, too. And that's the ultimate cause of our suffering, mm-hmm. according to But the, Yeah, Buddhism. and the cooler you get with that, look, I can, yeah. I can testify just, to this. It's just, just, just yeah, it's relaxing. It. It's like, you know, life is a bitch, but it's not just a bitch for me. Right. And it's not a bitch all the time. And, right. the, and the amount to which I actually anticipate it being a bitch causes more suffering than when I'm actually experiencing things that sort of suck. Like worrying about an airplane like delay is worse than the delay. Definitely. You know? <laughs> yeah, the stress that's attached to it. And then, you know, you can carry it around after the fact and tell everyone the story about how much it sucked that your airplane was delayed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And remain attached but, to that. Right. Right. But if you just let it go it. as soon as it's over with, it's done. Mm-hmm. That airplane is not delayed anymore. You're on the airplane. You're going to wherever you're going. So it's ultimately and we call a that choice. skillful. That's skillful. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Right. So there's a story I heard a long time ago when I was studying Zen Buddhism in college that the the motorcycle monk uh-huh. is this a like an urban legend or is it like a koan kind of to just sort of get a point across that the story I heard is that there's a guy studying in a monastery uh-huh. and by day he's a good devout monk and by night he's climbing over a wall and getting on a motorcycle and going into town and partying. Uh-huh. And one night he goes to climb over the wall and he finds his teacher kneeling at the foot of the wall for him to step on his back and go over the wall. And meaning to say, I've been seeing, you've been doing this all along. So first, do not think that I didn't know or right. that, you know, my knowledge of this one way or the other, or you doing this for one way or the other is an impediment to your, your, um, your seeking enlightenment or whatever, this experience. Right. Like it's you thinking that this is a problem that makes it a problem. So, you know, is that? Well, Zen is very much about skipping a lot of steps. Mm-hmm. I mean, Zen is one of those, um, particularly the Southern, uh, southern school of zen but the idea is is that you have to completely like there is no box it's not even just thinking outside of the box it's like destroy the box Mm -hmm. completely Mm -hmm. so any sort of constrictive thoughts that you have in your mind get rid of them right you know there's the classic you're doing it to yourself yeah you're Mm -hmm. doing it to yourself because the moment of they believe in sudden enlightenment Mm -hmm. And you can't have that unless you've completely let go of all of your perceptions, even your uh, faith in your teacher. You have mm-hmm. to go beyond that. Yeah. Completely. Do not confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon. Right. You do. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the classic, the classic story of the end. Zen, one of the things, it, one of the things that uh, made Buddhism so popular um, and so successful in so many different countries is that it adapts to the indigenous traditions. Mm-hmm. And Zen takes on, um, it originally um, came from actually Chan, which mm-hmm. was in China. And well, didn't it start? Of, it's Yana as Indian, Chan as Chinese, yana, and Zen yeah, as yeah. Japanese, So right? yeah, the mm-hmm. word Yana actually means just meditation, and right. so it's a form of Buddhism that was focused Seated meditation. on, yeah, mm-hmm. on meditation. And then somehow Yana gets um, pronounced Chan right. in China, and, and then, then Zen in Japan, yeah. right? Um, but one of the things it picked up in China that it didn't have so much in where, in India where it started was uh, a really strong Confucian 
element mm -hmm. and from Chinese culture it gets the hierarchy mm -hmm. and the focus on the Zen master mm -hmm. um, who is totally in charge of their disciples um, uh, progress basically mm -hmm. their spiritual progress and the Zen master is supposed to know what you need to hear at what mm -hmm. particular time and then the tradition of koans starts which you which you reference mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. uh, so was a sutra and a koan are completely different yeah. Things. Okay. A koan is kind of like an exercise and a sutra is a... An exercise in just escaping your mind, going beyond it. It's a nonsensical question that's posed by a Zen master to a student um, that is supposed to make you completely think outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And there can be, you know, a koan is going to be tailored to a particular student. Mm -hmm. And even though the Zen master... You know, they're not necessarily supposed to, but maybe they'll use the same koan, the same question for different students. The answer that they're looking for is going to be different from student to student because each person is somewhere different on their path. And so they'll need to hear or to think in certain, in different ways in order to get to that complete right. release of the mind that right. allows moments of insight. They, everybody's got a different uh, uh, track that's got, that they're stuck in. Yeah, a different uh, light switch somewhere yeah. in their brain that they have to turn on in order mm -hmm. to get to it. See, I but like this, even though, I mean, I guess on, on one level... I'm drawn to the idea of, of, of uh, personal, the, the sort of individual experience of meditation and, and then ultimately realizing you don't need any of that stuff. And, that, you know, you already had everything and yeah. you're, you're good. But the, the pupil, the master pupil thing under the right circumstances is really this brilliant thing because, like, it gets it. The problem with the individual is it's like, you know, um, a computer with a virus trying to fix itself. You know, right. and so you need this objective prodding or this objective tampering or meddling or whatever sometimes. And what seems to be great about Zen masters is it's usually not patently about what the student thinks it's about. It tricks them by not even confronting them head on with what they think they want to know about. Right. You know, um, it says go sweep the courtyard, you know, and I love that kind of teaching because it produces a Gnostic uh, education instead of an intellectual one, because you can fucking know shit all you want, but right. it doesn't necessarily change anything. Right, you know? and I mean, it's a tradition that's about losing yourself. Mm -hmm. You can get intellectual and stuck in your head, and that's a hint, that's it's just a game. An, an impediment right. to your progress. Right. So. Yeah, recently I was talking to somebody about the tree of knowledge um, in the, you know, the Old Testament, uh -huh. and I'd always thought of that as really essential, uh, like the ability to do what we're doing right now. And I never separated it from, because I'm reading the Gnostic Bible now, and I'm kind of getting into the concept of Gnosis and the way mm -hmm. that they... And I've liked Gnosis as a concept before, because I've really been having this experience, which is at odds with my intellectual knowledge previously, of right. learning, really learning things through action, you know, by changing behavior and, and changing actions and doing things differently, and how that has completely altered my perception of reality. Right. You know? um, and so now I'm kind of saying, well... What, there, what was really being offered in the Garden of Eden when you bit into the tree of knowledge is the synthetic, artificial, knowledge that's just empty words. It's not really it's knowing anything. It's not the experiential right. sort of knowing that you Right. Need. It's that thing we distract ourselves with, with thinking that we understand so much 
because so we can name it. Thinking and doing, or <laughs> mm-hmm. thinking and feeling, maybe. Yeah, and knowing when to let go of the finger pointing at the moon and really get at the essence of the thing, which is really an internal thing when you identify your eternal nature as a right as a, as the universe. Knowing something right? with every fiber. Because kun knowledge gets you removing yourself further and further through language and ca- categories sure, and Sure, I mean, this all is a problem with academics all over the right. world. Right. Ultimately. Right. It's right. probably why I never finished my doctorate. Is yeah, you began very... to realize it's all bullshit on a certain level because, you know, when you're in academia, you are trying to jump in. Abby and I talked about this. You're, you know, it's a lot, a lot of navel gazing. And it has a lot to do with the reputation of the school and certain things that they want to confirm are being done. It's curriculum. And then mm-hmm. curriculum is accountable to a brand and like a business and mm-hmm. all of this and shit. And donors, yeah. Right, it's a business, you know. And that has completely different requirements or needs or goals, you know, than, you know, what we're, the kind of education we're talking about, which is really more about removing ideas than adding them, yeah. you know. It's like removing, removing bad uh, unskillful thinking, you, bad ideas, concepts. Yeah. But do you feel like you have to have that base of knowledge first to then be able to completely blow it apart? I mean, yeah, th- maybe isn't, so. it, isn't it important, though, to sort of, ha- you know, you can't just not know anything ever and have none of the knowledge because then what right. are you, I mean, what, what do you, you, have? you gotta have, you gotta I mean, have, this is a recognition. You something, right. right? And then, right. I agree. Uh, I mean, it's a recognition of the fact that you need tools. Right. You know, like in order... And then you can unlearn uh, what you've learned. Yeah. They say that about jazz musicians, you know, like, okay, master this and I'll forget everything. Become a musician first. Yeah, Yeah. and then forget it, you know. Because, I mean, you can really get stuck in mastery, you know, and it becomes a, a, a masturbatory thing that isn't even about the goal of the skill. It just becomes a skill itself. And, and then there's no heart up. in it anymore. No point to it. Totally. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that, I think that I like the idea that there are a lot of paradoxes involved in, mm-hmm. in, and, and I recognize Definitely that as in, natural. In like Zen Buddhism, mm-hmm. it's all about the paradox. And mm-hmm. I don't know as much about like the Eastern, um, um, and Zen is definitely a type of Mahayana. Um, there, there's just so many different, I mean, they almost completely, you know, that concept of the Atman that we were talking about, the, mm-hmm. the soul, the you are everything. Well, Mahayana Buddhism kind of goes, does a 180 and goes back to that idea mm-hmm. and fully embraces it. And you have this idea of the Buddha nature, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. your true self, Everybody's your got Buddha it. nature, you everyone has it, it is out of the everything, way and you're, right. right, and your Buddha nature is nirvana mm-hmm. and coming to that understanding. Which is an old Indian idea, right, that right. I namaste mean, is recognizing that you've already got it, I got it. And that, no. yeah, that completely goes back to Hinduism, but... So it kind of, it's almost, Mahayana Buddhism is almost more like Hinduism than it is like the early Buddhism. Which then, you know, and and I've been drawn to Hinduism after really being more, uh, I don't know, comfortable with Zen Buddhism for a long time. And it starts off Zen Buddhism, just a sexy rock and roll kind of cool thing. There's something about it that just, you know, it's it's an aesthetic conceit or something it's rebellious yeah. you know mm-hmm. yeah. this idea of just letting go of everything unlearning everything and mm-hmm. then that there's this lightning posse strike moment of insight mm-hmm. that can liberate you but the more yeah, that i cool. get and i do like that but i think those things happen over and over again with things that are like the myths and the stories of the early indian mythology and, mm-hmm. and you know like 
that this idea that that Vishnu is dreaming the universe, like yeah. on a river, you know, something like that, and and he's at play and he uh-huh. is all L- of these things. Lila, yeah, play. Yeah. Yeah, that's the idea that it's just a cosmic dream. I mean, the creation mythology in Hinduism is super trippy. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, the world recreates and destroys itself, mm-hmm. liquefies, turns to water. Mm-hmm. There's eons that pass. Mm-hmm. I mean. It's really neat. There's all these stories about seers and sages that can actually survive the disillusion of the universe mm-hmm. and wander around in these primordial waters and all kinds of cool stuff happens. But yeah, the, I mean, the, 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 the idea dreaming that these, one. St- these stories, they function kind of as koans and sutras and whatever. They, uh, they, they get you, they lull you into a, a, a tale, but the realization the epiphany happens in the tale i know what they mean by that you know mm-hmm. and like the the knowledge i have of science and, and the knowledge i have of that kind of a story about vishnu go together to me because mm-hmm. i kind of believe that whatever the universe is there is some inertia making all of these things function the way that they are they want something they're some at, kind of like a uh, wizard of oz type figure that's behind the curtain it's you mean in or the, like, it's in it like like vishnu it's uh-huh. playing it, it wants to take form you know it was formless and all of this that's going on all the way down to the subatomic level is it taking form and experimenting with form you know and in order for any of this function, it has to be the world of illusion that is created, that has certain laws and standards that allow this process to continue over and over again. You know, gravity and uh, right. There's got to be some effect. kind it's, of right, like the matrix laws that are in, in effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it really is a flow. I mean, that that you know, Vishnu is 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 really that that cohesive element of the energy of the universe that is making the energy bond and form protein chains and. All of this stuff and it's like gr- the glue that's kind of yeah, but it's yeah, it's the glue. It's also the electrical current that's going through right. the glue that makes the glue stick to this and become this shape and that shape. And it's like moving through all of this, trying to get somewhere. And in a way, it is also lost. It has created the universe and lost itself that, in it. That it sounds yeah. kind of like chi. What you're talking about this mm-hmm. like constant energy flux that sort of sustains the universe and causes the sort and of and it cosmic. has a will of some kind, but it doesn't know what it wants either. It just knows it has desire. It's just a desire for something to happen. Yeah, I mean, it may not even know it has desire. It is desire. You know, the desire for elements to form and compounds and and simple organisms and complex organisms and all of this stuff to be going on. And that that seems like that's a scientific way of saying that's what Vishnu is doing, dreaming. Because dreaming is somewhat unconscious. And you're you're not really in control of it. Right. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. And and so Shiva, I think, has to come along after this has gone on for a while. And destroy and everything. scramble it back up. Because it right. can't get too stuck in these shapes, you know? Otherwise, you know, it's something, it really will die. It really will end. Yeah. It'll solidify and become brittle and all of that. And it will be no good. But it has to stay so fluid. So it has to be knocked all like, just knock it all back down. And, you know, the... Things can't just stay in, in a sort of dreamlike status quo forever. Yeah, they have to but they also can't dissolve get, and be recreated. And right. There has to be the energy. It has to be the flow. Well, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because think about this also. If you or I stop eating or drinking, we die right. immediately. We constantly have to be taking energy in from you know, the universe. Mm-hmm. The energy has to be flowing through us for us to, be, to survive. We don't think of food 
as energy. We think of it as a hamburger, you know, or a piece of pizza or whatever. But this is all the energy of the universe that we are chewing up, swallowing, and it fuels us. Stop doing that for a week and you're dead, you know? Yeah. So perhaps there's no life in these bodies at all, ever, other than what's coming in, you know, <laughs> in the form of pizza. <laughs> I'm pretty much pizza. I think I'm 90% pizza. Yeah. And what do they call <laughs> that in the, that the Indian? There's the body that it is made up of the food that you eat. I forget what it's called. It's like somebody was the food body. I don't know. The, yeah, there's this, yeah, there's like the subtle bodies, the food body. The, um, yeah, there's lots of different things. And they all have different flavors like rajas and tamas. And you're made yeah, up of different like darkness. I don't know. I've got some spicy in there. Yeah. <laughs> little darkness, probably. <laughs> Red curry. Rajas. Mm -hmm. But you're not supposed I'm to peanut eat butter. tejas. That's, the, uh, that's another one. That's uh, one Mexican of the light, food. <laughs> light ones. But you're, you're supposed to eat the opposite. Like, you don't want to be a hundred, too much spicy or too much dark or too much light. Right. Are you we getting be, into like, that? What is it? mix. Uh, Ayurveda. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think? My sister has, has been taken in by those uh, charlatans a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, no, you're a cool personality. You shouldn't oh, eat spicy. No. Has she done the whole analysis where mm -hmm. they look at your fingernails? Yeah, she was going eyeballs. to these ladies and I'd they like were telling her, yeah. I've never done the full-on thing. We, when we were in, uh, Jayan and I were in Sri Lanka, we uh, went to a, a sort of Ayurvedic spa. It was pretty cool. I mean, definitely feel better afterwards, but... Mm -hmm. I've never done the full diagnosis. You got to be pretty hardcore. I mean, they would probably tell me not to eat any more spicy food. I don't right. know if I could. I don't think that kind of thing just doesn't doesn't sit well. Although I'm a very dreamy and open to lots of kinds of spirituality and whatever, like um, the the idea that there's some other knowledge about science that isn't included in science. You know, um, that this is really the answer. Like, you really need to just descend into, you know, paleo diets or whatever, and that's the answer. But the I process is very scientific. I mean, the way they do it, it's thousands of years old, you know, and they have, and... Scientific is means that there is... It, it, there's it, a method it, to right. it. Right, the scientific I mean, method, there's a control, you can, you know, there is... Yeah, a, they've, you know, tried this out on, on people. They've done their scientific methods. I think there's also a long tradition in Indian culture of the fakir, the uh, charlatan. There the, definitely you know, The guy who really makes, just like the, uh, the tent minister who's like, you know, making out with snakes and shit. There's always some charismatic Yeah, the yogi. That, yeah. Yeah, those, that goes way, way back, definitely. There's, I saw a BBC documentary rec um, that was sort of, the whole point was to expose these uh, wandering uh, yogis and mm -hmm. um, rishis, seers that were wandering around in the rural villages in India, and they were using tricks that are thousands of years old. You mm -hmm. know, to appear to be levitating. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, that these those types of guys. They'd have you know they would use eggs that wobble around on the ground that are supposed to be possessed, but really mm -hmm. there's like a mouse hidden in them, and <laughs> squash them, all kinds of things like that. But yeah, no, that, that tradition definitely exists. So you, you undertook a study of this for what reason? Why did you go into it? Well, I was always into, you know, I, I wasn't raised in any particular religious tradition. We'd just go to the Unitarian Church every once in a while, which always, had, you know, was careful to sort of, you know, if there was uh, any, any holiday anywhere in the world, they would, you know, talk about it. So from that sense, kind of 
you know, and I had some friends that were in different religious traditions, and that was just always interesting to me. When I was a teenager, I went through that obligatory phase of, you know, being into Wicca, you know, mm-hmm. thinking I was a witch, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then um, when I you guess were kind I was, of a Northern California hippie girl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and then um, when I don't know, some some point in my teenage years, I started. I think I read Siddhartha. You know, mm-hmm. started reading about different. Um, you know, Buddhism was just always interesting to me. My parents have a lot of Asian art and stuff mm-hmm. around our mm-hmm. house, and when I, actually I skipped part of this story. When I was a kid, I used to meditate. Oh, yeah? And I don't know how I learned how to... Yeah, without prompting. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I kind of taught myself how to meditate. I used to be really good at it, actually. And I would play games where I would try to... Some somehow I learned about uh, reincarnation, and so I would play games to try to remember my former lives. Mm. So I guess that interest in Eastern religions was always there, but then um, some point in high school, Aries. Hmm. So you're either at the beginning or the end of the wheel there, right? Yeah. Of reincarnation. Um, and then my moon sign Sagittarius, so I got, um, but I, uh, well, what do you, when you back up, when you say that you were studying or, or you started meditating on your own, what form did that take? I mean, meditation is really a broad yeah. thing. So what did it, what did it look like for you when you were, when I was a kid, yeah, yeah. um, I would actually do what I later found out it was a little bit more like transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. which I have very mixed feelings about as an, uh-huh. <laughs> someone who studied now different types of meditation, but I would um, focus on uh, on an idea like of a say a leaf falling or something mm-hmm. like that. When I would and I would completely go in my mind and envision that and actually go outside of my body and do oh a whole, astral yeah. traveling and shit yes. like that. Oh, right on. <laughs> I'm talking about like eight years old. Uh-huh. I have no idea where I learned this stuff. But yeah, I would do that kind of thing. See, and like I, go and like travel places like in my mind. I think, you know, I, bu- I buy this shit and I believe But that with total 100% concentration. Yeah. I buy this like, you know, do you ever read Daniel Pinchbeck's book like the um, Quetzalcoatl, 2012 Return to Quetzalcoatl? Or, you know? Well, he's kind of talking about, I guess, fringe science is, is related to these kinds of concepts of like astral traveling and remote viewing and you know, telepathy and communication across vast distances and whatever. And what is kind of believable to me about it is like we talked about the paradox a little while ago on the subatomic level, they, they, you know, have done many experiments that show that things are, have a paradoxical nature. They are, can be both, you know, they can be both a part, like light can be particle and a wave depending on what you're looking for. And that's where the whole Schrodinger's cat kind of comes into it. Like whatever you're trying to observe alters the nature of what you're observing, um, but the idea that 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 you know the foundational particles of existence can be in more than one place at the same time—that they are not really tied to what we consider to be linear time and space—so mm-hmm. that perhaps we are sharing, you know, that people in different parts of this universe and this planet even are sharing the same material, are experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that, <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm following. There's that the concept in um, in Buddhism is called dharmas or mm-hmm. dhamma particles. Mm-hmm. Um, have you so heard that's like, like the living thing? teaching or something? No, so abhidhamma is the third. Um, if you look at the Pali canon, which mm-hmm. is you know P A L I Pali. Yeah, Pali. Uh-huh. It's what the the first. Um, it's a Middle Indo-European uh, Indo European um, Indo. 
uh, language, and it's in between like Hindi and Sanskrit, and it's what the very first Buddhist texts are written in. And um, the the there's there's three parts of it, um, but the Abhidhamma, which is uh, what really the only monks would study, but it's all particle theory, and mm -hmm. it's uh, basically what you're talking about. This idea that the universe can be broken up into little tiny particles of reality called mm -hmm. dharmas, mm -hmm. uh, one of the many definitions of the word dharma in uh, Buddhism, and um, that these uh, are connected to one another in infinite numbers of ways, and that each you know dharma. Um, determines what's going to happen. It has, you know, a hundred yeah. different types of natures that you can break down and analyze. Strange and attractors. And yeah, what is it? Strange attractors and, uh, oh God, I forget what it's called. Um, there, it's a term like, the, the, it's got to do with how one particle is connected to another particle. They, they, a link between them and like, shit. Oh, well. But it's it's why we have in Buddhism the um, ability to to change things, mm -hmm. you know, from moment to moment. You can stop um, a moment in time, break it down into different dharmas, different particles of reality, analyze them, and from each of those moments uh, that make up, you know, each of those different factors that make up a moment. You know, how much coffee did you drink? What time of day is it? What did you do the minute before this? Are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? Are you hot? Are you cold? All mm -hmm. of these different little factors that mm -hmm. go into a single moment. And then imagine that there's an infinite number of possibilities that mm -hmm. can derive from each of those moments. Mm -hmm. um, and you have and the that ability. they all exist? Yeah, they all exist simultaneously. Right. At any given moment, there's mm -hmm. a billion different paths that can happen from that have moment. And have happened. Right. right. And that's the many worlds interpretation that yeah. came out of the guy from the eel's father. I can't remember that guy's name, but that's how he came to explain things that weren't lining up in quantum mechanics. Right, Because right. they're, they're all happening. Yeah, so, this is really similar. To, it's basically string theory. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, su it's super similar. But um, So, yeah, there's an infinite number of possibilities, but the exciting thing about them is then you have the ability you know, to change if you can sort of isolate each moment. And that's what mindfulness is about. Mm -hmm, it's like being mm -hmm. in each moment and then determining you want it to go in a positive direction, not one of the billions of negative directions mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. are also possibilities there. So is that how knowing this stuff, and I, I interrupted the story of how it all has come to be, but I mean, my next question was going to be, how is it practically? The is there a practical manifestation of this knowledge in your life? Do you find yeah, yourself as I mean, it's just super practical, you know, it's just trying, it's basically just trying to, to live a good, you know, just be a good person. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's what it breaks down to, you and know, yeah, and, and, then and how knowing you, what you, you have control over, which right. is just yourself, not much, right. <laughs> really, but, right. you know, just yourself. And everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, and everything, nothing and everything, but. To, but to behave in a, in a proper Way. In a skillful yeah. way, in a mindful way, uh, you know. From moment to moment and accepting that, you know, things are impermanent. Things are subject to change. and With and loving compassion and, you know, all of these things that it really does create a different reality for you. You got to go. Mm -hmm. We're almost done, too. Is there are any other, anybody else hey, going to come on. in? Jayon. Shit, let me pause this thing. We're going to be yelling. Well, uh, we've been having a really interesting conversation, and Liz is supposed to be sending me other guests in here, but she just let this one roll. Well, I didn't know how long you wanted to go. Well, I mean, it was a great, I'm really glad it went as long as it did. I mean, it was very cool. And I mean, I've been wanting to have this kind of conversation on here, so we're good. I'm just giving you a hard time. All right. I didn't know. But so do you just want me to, like, get somebody else?
Yeah, Jayon can sit down for a minute because we haven't had him at all. So, yeah, it's it's change you, places. You're, you're a few more minutes. Yeah. This is a total interruption to this thought, though. Like, Sorry. would you consider the? It, this was an academic thing, yeah. but it is also a life thing. It is, yeah. So that I mean, I got I got sucked into it academically just because reading about it made such total sense. It was almost like I, you know, knew it you before knew it. or something, yeah. and so I, it was almost a sort of lazily academic thing. And, and then the more you, know you read you it, you're no just like, the yes, pupil. I you knew are the that. Master. I knew that. <laughs> right. It's empowering. Right. No, it's it's. Uh, early Buddhism is just very common sense. And so, so what do you think of me calling really this show Tantric Conversation? Do you think that that uh, shows a misunderstanding of the word? Or do you think it, in some ways it does function? Uh, I think it works. Yeah. I think yeah. it works. It works with one, one aspect of Tantra. As long as anyway. it's not that filthy part, right? That's right. No, <laughs> I mean... I, one one important part of tantra is talking about the or is doing things that mm-hmm. are taboo and and uh to sort of shock the mind and mm-hmm. to go outside of your everyday and i mm-hmm. think that's one of the things you you like to do in these conversations right, right? It's some of to what explore is things that aren't aren't your everyday yeah some of what is taboo is to be to tell the truth you know yeah on some it level is. you know Definitely. and just say what you think and say how you feel about something without apologizing for it that tends to be taboo in america it is it's i think in most countries that's pretty taboo so yeah in that sense but i I also like the idea that there's close teaching involved the transmission of uh right that is a a really important element of tantra um that you didn't have as much in early buddhism but definitely in the in the hindu traditions yeah this Mm -hmm. idea of a guru um and disciple that relationship um, and one way we put it in, in the field that I've been bec- studying most of my enlightenment, which is AA, is you, <laughs> know, you have a sponsor who's kind of your guru, but he really isn't a, of a higher state than you. He's just the objective brain on your subjective insanity. So he just is less crazy than you in that moment and can, t- and can say to you, you trust me, right? That's crazy, what you're, <laughs> what you're saying. That's crazy. Um, but they, we take turns being crazy. Like, right. and, and basically, it's just a placeholder for some objective reality instead of total subjective insanity. So, you know, that's really what the relationship of two people talking to me is. I like is that. They, they can't both be equally crazy at the same time or, out, you know, unskillful or misapp- misapprehending. Someone around you is being crazy. You got to be the straight person. You right? know, just say, look, I know how you, the real this seems to you right now. But objectively, it's not. You're out <laughs> of your mind. You're just, and Thich Nhat Hanh put it really well. He said, most of us go around, and I, I've repeated this about three times on this podcast now, scared of something as though we have drawn a picture of a ghost, looked at it, and frightened ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's most of our fears. Uh, you know, a picture of a ghost that we drew. Ghosts are scary, though. They are, but you would think if you drew it. Yeah. But anyway, thanks, Kate. You want to slide <laughs> in you. here? Jayon. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So can we bring the baby in? Sure. All right, because we're gonna interview. But let's get this baby in the chair first. Yeah, so that's a little something different from the old tantric conversation. Kate McDonald, well, Kate Falsini, uh, my friend Jayan's bride, and interesting person. Um, I've you know picked up a lot of this. Eastern 
thought all kinds of places. I know a fair amount about it, but I, you know, there's a whole lot that uh, is I don't know. And she knows a hell of a lot more. Very interesting. And I could go on and on geeking out about that sort of thing. I mean, I'm I'm interested in it academically, and I'm interested in it theoretically, but I mean, I'm really interested in it practically. Um, I think it was a time when I thought that uh, Buddhism, uh, especially, which was what I had been exposed to in college, was just uh, semantics. I mean, it was just kind of another way of, of talking about things that it didn't really change anything. It was just, it's just kind of clever. It's kind of smart-ass, I actually thought, I think. I think it was a little bit uh, smug and, you know, always just kind of negating things that seemed really potent and powerful to me with, you know, don't attach to that. And it, you know, almost seemed like psychobabble, I think, which I also used to, you know, find a lot more profound now that I understand how it is practically applied words like you know, detaching and boundaries and codependency and all of these things that, uh, you know, just I heard people talking about when I was a teenager and I just wanted to shut the bug up. But I I get it. I, get, I can apply this stuff to my life and it actually makes a difference. And you don't, I mean, I didn't have to go, you know, live in an ashram or um study in a monastery and I think that's what Kate's saying is you know Mahayana is just like you know whatever it takes however you get there it's like this is a thing that's available to anybody at any time to kind of realize how much of your reality is optional and um, not essential and that there is some there's truth out there but it doesn't have a whole lot to do with these stories we tell ourselves and that there's another thing you can get at and there are lots of ways to get there and I'm one of the ways I like to do it is by talking to people. <clears throat> so that's what I did with her. And uh, I'd like to have talked to more people, but still, this is pretty good. I think we're actually going to get close to an hour show out of this. So, all right. Thanks for checking in, and I hope you enjoyed Kate McDonald. Namaste for real, though. <laughs>